Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype, right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today on the programme, we're continuing with our next show focused on UBS's annual flagship Greater China Conference, the 23rd edition of which took place last month. The GCC continues to enjoy tremendous interest with thousands of registered attendees, whether that's institutional investors or several hundred Chinese listed and private companies. Now, we previously enjoyed highlights from a keynote in which UBS's Kirsten Parker, a tech banker based in Singapore, had a fascinating conversation with Lulu Chen, Asia investing and real estate team leader in Bloomberg and author of the new book Influence Empire, the story of Tencent and China's tech ambitions. Today, we're going to hear from a panel discussing the global economic and policy outlook for the rest of the year and beyond, with a particular focus on what the most recent data says about recession and about inflation. We'll hear from four previous guests of this programme. The UBS Investment Bank Global Chief Economist Aaron Captain, Chief European Economist Reinhard Kluzer, their US counterpart John Pengel, and UBS Head of Asia Economics Tao Wang. So let's get to it. Aaron Captain is your chair. Here he is, kicking things off. So Jonathan, the first question really for you. So when you look at the sort of incoming data for Q4, consumption still looks okay. We had a, a pretty you know, decent payroll print on, on Friday. How do we get from that to the recession that you have in the forecast and, and maybe remind us of, of sort of the numbers? Well, first of all, we don't think that there's actually you know, that far to go. I mean, if you, if you think about some of the more important series for the U.S., you know, manufacturing IP peaked in April. It's declined half a percent in the last two, last two months. Core orders for capital goods peaked in August. Doesn't look to be headed back to that peak. And it's not just manufacturing. Housing's falling rapidly. What started with single-family permits falling is now you know, starting to take multifamily down with it. And even if you look at you know, the services, you know, we got service PMIs that look terrible. And the ISM, you know, non-manufacturing composite that was released, you know, last Friday sits in recessionary territory. And you know, when we think about what the what the few bright spots are, you know, consumer spending got a lift, you know, in August, September, October due to falling gas prices. I mean, that still could play out, but you know, even when we look at consumer spending, real spending in November was flat. We got the auto and light truck sales for the U.S. for December; they fell six percent. It's over 50% annualized. If you, you know, so, so, so we are seeing you know, real weakening, real peaks in uh, important series in the U.S. The forward-looking data you know, looks, quite, well, looks quite weak. It does not look like a resilient economy. I mean, maybe at a high level, if you're reading the headlines, you just saw non-farm payroll employment. If you're the Fed chair, maybe then you think it's really resilient. But it doesn't take much if you look back at history, at the initially reported data, you know, in the 90 recession, uh, in the 2000s recession, you went pretty quickly from non-farm payroll employment printing 250, 300,000 to negative within two, three months. So, so when we think about what's unfolding, you know, we have an economy that is vulnerable. It looks like it's past its peak. It's losing its momentum. We now see the labor market having slowed. We expect it to slow much more considerably in the next few months. And we think by April, you're going to have a true business cycle peak and the economy could roll into recession. So we don't really think it's that much of a stretch to think that you have this near-term path to rolling over, given the data that we have in hand. And, and so the two forces sort of getting us there. So, so one, I guess, is more slow-moving incremental, which is the impact of the tightening. And, and then the other, I guess, is savings, right? So 
Uh, could you just briefly sort of comment on what's happening on, on the savings side? Yeah, I mean, we've been very surprised as we've seen incoming income data that has actually looked quite weak, much weaker than, than we would have expected and previously, and previously had estimated. And what that has told us is that households are running out of their excess savings extremely rapidly and at an unsustainable pace, particularly given that the excess savings disproportionately held by upper income households. And we're seeing credit card balances rise. You know, we got the November data for consumer credit overnight up another 18 billion. So it's rising 18, you know, 18 percent. I mean, 18 percent, an annualized rate in one month. And that's a pretty chunky increase in credit card balances to finance flat real consumption. So putting all together this rise in credit card balances, delinquencies are starting to creep up and households exhausting their savings makes us look like households are really running out of momentum and more and more households are going to have to have their income realign with their consumption or their consumption realign with their income and we expect much more meaningful slowing in consumption you know, after we get through the holiday season into the next right. year. And so, so then we have sort of negative payroll starting in slowly in the second quarter, building up in Q3, Q4, three quarters of negative growth, and then we're sort of down about a percentage point Q4 over Q4, yep. right? Yep. Okay. So Reinhardt's European news is pr looking pretty good. I mean, front month gas contracts have collapsed. Energy prices look to be going down. Shallow recession? Yeah, it's, the data is looking pretty good compared with very low expectations, we have to say that. So last year we had, we believe, about 3%, 3.2% growth. For this year, on an annual average, we expect 0.2. But this 0.2 masks the fact that we do expect a technical recession for the fourth quarter of last year and the first quarter of this year. The driver here is not so much monetary policy tightening, it's the energy crisis. The energy crisis that has been triggered, particularly by the, by the war in Ukraine, we believe it will have Europe in its grip for longer, not just this winter, also next winter, 23-24. However, at the moment, we believe that our forecast that the fourth quarter will have seen a contraction of minus 0.4, that the first quarter might see a contraction of minus 0.2, might even be too pessimistic, might be somewhat less, not just because energy prices came lower recently. It has to do mainly with major fiscal stimulus in Europe. So governments have really stepped in to protect the consumer, to protect corporates from very high prices. Also, over the last couple of months, uh, we were able to fill up our gas storages in Europe almost to 100%. This means the concern that we would run out of gas over the winter has declined a lot. So this has given a lift to private sector confidence, which we will now probably benefit from. But so we're going to get that recovery and confidence, but then we have next winter to worry about. So does that constrain how much we can rebound here? I think so. So following the technical recession in Q4, Q1, we do expect a, a mild rebound over the spring and summer. We believe this is because we will you know, still know that this energy crisis is hanging over our heads until at least 2024. We also do believe that you know, private sector balance sheets will have suffered some more sustained damage so that we don't bounce back quite as hard as we would wish to. And then, as you said, coming into the winter 2023-24, we believe that energy prices will stay elevated and diminish household purchase power so that in the coming winter 23-24, we will grind back almost to stagnation. At that stage, uh, we also assume that uh, the weakness in the US economy will be an additional headwind so that we really have this, this wave uh, pattern of GDP 
technical recession, subdued upswing, and then 23, 24 in the winter, another downturn, and then hopefully in 24, 25, we're back to something that feels a bit more normal. 25, great. <laughs> <laughs> so so China is one of the glimmers of hope, the opening up happening a little bit earlier than, than we thought, but and you've already got it in the forecast. Let's first start with why the sudden opening up, right? We thought it would come after Chinese New Year, actually a little bit later even. What do you think is, is sort of behind the decision to move a bit faster? Yeah, so uh, I think the actual opening indeed was a bit uh, faster than expected. I think in uh, mid-November when they announced the 20 measures to, that, that showed us they, they had a plan, we thought they had a few months to execute the plan, but it seems that um, there are a few things for that change. I think one is local governments uh, looked like they were really seriously running out of money to continue with that kind of um, quarantine and testing, which uh, is all uh, free. And uh, so the economy was, of course, in a, in a dire situation. But also, I think Omicron turned out to be extremely contagious and not easy to contain. So they, it didn't really give you that time to prepare. So things happened quite a bit faster. And, and also the development of Omicron infection had basically by now swept through most of the country already. It also happening very fast. And so what are you seeing in terms of the impact, the, the immediate impact of that opening up in the data? So what, what are we seeing in the high frequency data? Yeah, so we monitor not just, uh, you know, basically the, the cases and so on, which is not very easy to pick up, but we are looking at passenger traffic, uh, congestion index in cities and freight transport and so on. We see that things really went down in the first three weeks of uh, December, but towards the end, things start to, to pick up. So basically, we think that December uh, economic data are going to look pretty bad, um, maybe about as, as bad as November or even worse. So that basically means that fourth quarter last year would have likely to be a contraction sequentially, and then that, that lowers the uh, 2022 for, uh, number. But then after, in the first month so far, I think we see sequential pickup, but I think the, the base is very low. After the Chinese New Year, we see then notable pickup in activities, especially travel and services, and that will help uh, with uh, consumer income and, and then confidence. So we are looking for a sequential sort of 6% annualized uh, growth in the first quarter and then higher in the second quarter. For the year, we are looking at growth recovering to almost 5%. Okay. And so when you sort of compositionally look at that, that forecast, so is that largely just a consumption rebound or, or is it a property rebound? What, what are sort of the relative contributions? Yeah, so I think from number point of view, so we are looking for real consumption growth more than 6.5% this year. So it's certainly a consumer rebound from negative last yeah. year. But property stabilization is also very important uh, mathematically. It's not a key driver of growth this year, but it's going to be much less of a drag. So we, we think in 2022, it contributed negative more than three percentage points to GDP growth. And this year is just marginal ne negative. So both are critical to recovery this year. And then I guess what sort of offsets part of that property recovery is you, you have a net export swing because your imports accelerate. But I think this is sort of an interesting theme where there's this incredible optimism about this opening up, but you don't actually have that much of an import volume improvement, right? What, why is that? Right. So on the import side, we see a bit of a pickup, but not so much. 
partly because property will remain very weak. So on a year-to-year -year basis for the whole 2023, we think commodity demand will be on the hard commodities will probably be flattish. Where there is going to be volume growth is going to be oil demand and probably some LNG demand. So not a, a huge impact. Of course, there will be more outbound tourism. So services side, there will be uh, more imports. But net exports, because of the global slowdown we expect, net exports we think overall is going to subtract maybe half a percent from GDP compared to a positive contribution of one and a half. So it's a big swing there. So it's a nice segue, the, the, the increased demand for, for energy is a nice segue to the inflation debates particular concern for Europe that there may not be enough LNG uh, to go around. But let's start with you, Jonathan. So, so what are you, you know, the Fed has this very pessimistic view that core PCE by the fourth quarter is still only down to about three and a half and we're at 2.1. What, what gives us the confidence that we're <laughs> going to get to something like 2.1? Yeah, so I don't think the Fed is necessarily, they're pessimistic relative to us. I mean, we have a fair number of clients that are like, oh my gosh, you know, inflation is never getting below three. I mean, the Fed, to their, I mean, they do get restored price stability to some extent. But when I think about the big gap, I mean, we have, you know, both core PCE and CPI moving, you know, moving under three and core PCE down to two one in, in Q4 of this year. But, you know, we've got a fair amount of conviction at this point in a large part because of the data we have in hand. You know, we've seen a meaningful slowdown in rent growth for the new leases and rents in the marketplace, and they've actually outright declined now in December for a fourth straight month. Now, that's not seasonally adjusted data, so it's not as bad as it sounds, but it has definitely slowed noticeably below the pre-COVID pace. You know, given how elevated, uh, you know, rent inflation is right now, I mean, it's, you know, almost half a core for the CPI, right? Um, you know, that implies as these rents for new leases feed into the stock of rent, apartment rents, you know, the CPI measures, you know, every six months for an apartment, you know, it's, it's got a natural lag in how we measure inflation, but these, these indexes and these new rents lead six to 12 months pretty reliably. So we're expecting a meaningful shelter disinflation just based on the data we have in hand. We continue to see declines in used car prices. We're expecting further goods disinflation. So we have a lot of conviction, actually, that core inflation is likely headed below, below what the Fed thinks. You know, we'll see if we get our forecast. But that's also uh, an inflation forecast where, you know, yes, we have a lot of economic weakness in the forecast. But if you thought about it, only you know, roughly four-tenths or so of our inflation forecast is due to the economic weakness. The rest is really due to data we have in hand and expectations for that for that slowing. Now, that kind of confounds some economic weakness because rents are probably slowing because of economic weakness right. and house prices, et cetera. But when we think about you know our expectations for rising slack and an economic contraction next year, that's actually a small part of the disinflation we expect. So, Reinhardt, so if we look at the European inflation data, we don't yet, I mean, obviously we had a good December print, but we were less advanced, I guess, of, in the deceleration, right? So what's, what's your read on, on what's happening in the inflation data? Yeah, so we think that even in Europe, we've seen the peak in inflation, 10.6 in October. We went lower in November and December. The December print, which we got last week, was finally a positive surprise, 9.2, better than expected. But we think there's now still volatility in the numbers. In, this, in January, we might well go up again. And then, then over the course of the year, we will see very significant disinflationary base effects kick in that should bring inflation a lot lower. However, 
uh, by the end of the first quarter will still be you know above seven by the end of the, s the second quarter still above five and so forth so over the next couple of quarters inflation will remain uncomfortably high in Europe and that will continue to put a pressure on the ECB at the moment food and energy contribute about uh, more than 60 percent but we also have to say that core inflation is above 5%. In fact, in the December print, when headline came lower, as a positive surprise, core inflation went up to 5.2 from 5. So the situation should get better, but it does not necessarily mean that there's immediate relief for the ECB. We expect the bank to stay relatively hawkish. But so that, that strength in core inflation in Europe, I mean, could that all just be energy in the sense that you've had this massive one-dimensional shock, which is so large that every single sector in the economy is pricing this on and it's actually showing up in core, not just in the energy component? I think that's correct. However, the ECB is concerned over inflation expectations and also pro-inflationary second round effect via the labor market. So that's why the, the central bank is tempted to stay cautious. Also, it cannot be fully confident that it's really only about lagged effects of, of energy that is uh, showing up in core. So I want to get to sort of policy, and uh, but just before I do that, Tyler, let's, let's just quickly come back to you. So you, you mentioned the, the energy demand, so that's a potential source of inflationary pressure for, for Europe and Asian, Asian countries in particular. What about metals demand? So, so as the property recovers, is, is that a meaningful uh, source of, of upward support for iron ore and, and things like that? I guess it depends on whether we think it in a sequential way or, or annual way. So because our expectation is uh, overall property construction probably are going to be flattish compared to last, last year. So therefore, demand for these hard metals are going to be flattish, not, not really a major increase. But compared to the actual usage at the moment uh, on the ground, uh, you know, seasonally adjusted, there may be some upside. But on that, I think the, the commodity market reacted really super quickly when China announced the property measures, uh, you know, iron ore price already jumped up. So I'm not sure how much more there's going to come. Okay, great. So let's, let's switch the policy. So Jonathan, so where we are probably most off consensus is how rapidly the Fed responds to the recessionary forecast that you have, right? So can you walk us through what's the baseline and, and why do we think that would happen? I mean, there are a few reasons, you know. So first, um, you know, historically, Feds have been generally sensitive to job loss. And we, we think that this FOMC is going to be no different. Second, we do have inflation coming down. I mean, in the Fed's own projections, in 2024, they have 100 basis points of cuts when inflation falls from 3.5 to 2. Core PC inflation falls from 3.5 to 2.5%. We have that happening in the second half of this year. And, you know, it's not unreasonable to think that the FOMC, you know, if they've got the funds rate roughly 5%, and they're watching it become increasingly positive in real terms and increasingly restrictive in real terms, you know, wouldn't want to take some of that back. I mean, they have that in their existing forecast now. So I don't think it's all that controversial to think that if that's unfolding sooner, the, the FOMC would react. But the second thing that I think is, is also really salient is that, you know, we do have inflation moving meaningfully close to 2% at the end of this year and into 2024. And that implies that the Fed in the second half of the year is going to see month-over-month -month changes consistent with inflation at or near 2%, right? So the Fed's going to be increasingly confident that inflation is headed back to its target. And they're going to see a weakening labor market. And I think that's really the catalyst, the main catalyst for action is if we do see employment start to decline in the second quarter, you know, traditionally Feds react very quickly, right? In 2007, 
first negative payroll print was the August report, minus 4K reported in early September. A week and a half later, the Fed cut 50 basis points. Then, of course, employment rebounded after that, and they, yeah. but we'll, we'll spare them that. But, but I, think it, I think it would be a sign to many participants that the Fed had over-tightened, and they should probably take some back. And I don't think it's a very high lift to think that they would do that. I think right now, the prevailing market narrative from their communications is, oh, we have to set rates high, and we have to keep them there for longer. I think that's fine under current conditions and potentially their outlook. But I look at this committee as if conditions change, and that warrants a change in the stands of policy, that they would do so, and they could do so much more quickly than, than I think market participants um, expect. Jonathan Pingle wrapping up our selection of remarks from the Global Economic and Policy Outlook panel from last month's UBS Greater China Conference. You heard Aaron Captain, UBS Investment Bank Global Chief Economist, putting the questions to Chief European Economist Reinhard Kluzer, to John, their US counterpart, and to Head of Asia Economics, Tao Wang. That's all for this week's edition. Listen again and find out more at monocle.com. And for more from the GCC, dip into the archive there or catch up via your preferred podcast platform. To find out how UBS can help you, head to ubs.com now for information, insight and inspiration. This is The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening.